Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Web Chatham Report, episode 106. This is so exciting. Hi, how are you? It's been a while. What's up? I've got podcast fever. I am ready. I did slightly miscalculate things, though. I have a call at work in an hour and 10 minutes or so. And I was having a hunch this was going to be a really long one, but I guess we can try and confine it to an hour. I took every Friday off for the rest of the year, but for some reason I skipped this Friday, so I have to work today. I'm not doing anything, really. Um, I've done my work for the day. (laughs) It's 9.45 in the morning. But I have a long call at 11, so I should, you know, be on it since I'm working today. And then I got another call at 2. But yeah, what's up? Greetings from Chatham County, North Carolina, where I am and I will continue to be for the next uh, several months. It is day 648 of my quarantine, although I guess I don't know if we can really count this anymore. I just went to New York last week for a week. That's not true, for four nights. It was a great trip. I came home and, well, I came back to North Carolina and I sequestered myself in a hotel for another four days, testing every day because I was convinced that I was going to get COVID from my trip. Uh, It was very interesting. Everybody there, when I would tell them my plans, kind of looked at me askance and said that I didn't need to worry so much about getting COVID. And since I've left New York, I basically got out of that town at the heels of a new COVID outbreak, and now everybody's getting it left and right, and they're all freaked out. But seven days ago, they were all telling me I didn't need to worry about it. (laughs) But I worried... Uh, I went to four shows. It was awesome. I went to Yola Tango Sunday night. I got into town and I had dinner with my friend Laura. Uh, well, I checked into my hotel and then I walked over and had dinner with my friend Laura at the flower shop where they were not using their outdoor seating anymore. Uh, it was nice to see all the outdoor seating in New York. Like, I'm glad I got to finally go to New York. It was my first time back since March of 2020. So, you know, it's been like 21 months. So I got to see all the nice uh, outdoor seating pavilions that everybody's built. It really adds to the quality to the city. But really, a lot of them, people had stopped using. They're just piles up of chairs and things like that. It's kind of sad. Um, Yeah, I did eat outdoors at Balthazar, which was great. But first meal there, I was a little disoriented. It was like, okay, I guess we're eating indoors. Uh, Whatever. I just dealt with it. And uh, then I went to Yola Tango alone. And, well, backing up a moment, it was great to see Laura. That was awesome. And the food was delicious. And it's the first meal I've had in New York in ages. And it was wonderful. And we didn't really sit near anyone. So I wasn't terribly worried about, you know, the pandemic. A little bit uncomfortable. But I am triple vaxxed now. And I had read just before I gone that the third dose is what really helps with Omicron. Omicron. So I was feeling okay. But now I decided I'd still be as careful as I could without, you know, 
sacrificing the experience. So, yeah, went to Yola Tango. Didn't have anyone to go with. Um, I mean, that's not entirely true. I didn't really put a lot of effort into finding people to go with some of these shows, right? So one of the shows was a group thing that we had been planning for years. One of them was my friend was bringing me, and then the other two were two shows I'd, I booked, bought the tickets for. And I bought a second ticket, but I was like, just logistically, it's going to be really hard to get someone to go to these shows. What I had discovered in going to uh, whoever we went to see... <laughs> I don't remember the one show that Emma, oh, Psychedelic Furs, the one show that Emma and I have gone to this year at Cat's Cradle, is that it's very hard to socialize at a show in a mask, and I just assumed not do it. So I went to Yola Tango alone. It was the last night of the Hanukkah shows for 30 years. Yola Tango has been doing a Hanukkah residency somewhere in the New York area. I have been to four or five of them. Used to be out in Maxwell's at Hoboken Legendary Club. I went to two out there, and then it moved to the Bell House and Red Hook. I went to two there. Actually, I guess I've been to six because then this is my second one at Bowery Ballroom. So that was great. Uh, two nights earlier, Low had been the opener. The thing about the the Yola Tango shows is there's always surprise guests. I've had some great luck through the years. Sonic Youth. <laughs> uh, but I really would have been amazed and so thrilled if I had gone the night Low was the opener. I mean, oh my God. I missed that. That was two days earlier. But I, who I did get was really exciting. It was 11th Dream Day, who I've never seen live. So that was really awesome. Uh, famed Chicago indie band, been around forever, featuring Doug McCombs from Tortoise. Always wanted to see them, love their records. So that was really awesome. And uh, the show is sublime and wonderful, and I just I hadn't seen Yola Tango in so long. Ironically, uh, their next show on their tour itinerary at the time was a show in this coming March or April in Durham, at the Durham Bulls Stadium with Sylvanesso that I already have tickets to. Uh, so I was like, oh, cool. I'll see him back to back. But since then, they've booked a New York show or a New Year's Eve show in New York. So they won't be back to back shows. But still, that was pretty exciting. Uh, so this Sunday night, I was doing this. And then the show got out about midnight. And I was really wired and just so happy to be in the city. So I walked from Barry Ballroom to my favorite bar, Tom and Jerry's. Um, because we were, I was going there the next night with friends, and I kind of wanted to, I was a little nervous, right? And I kind of wanted to get the lay of the land. And another friend of mine, this guy Steve, had been to Tom and Jerry's recently. I was like, who's bartending? He's like, I don't know, some kid. And it like, kind of made me nervous. So I went there on my own. I just wanted to scope it out. And uh, I got in there, and there's like five people there. <laughs> Sat down at the bar. The bartender immediately asked for my Vax card. So that definitely made me feel better. And and, uh, you know, the five people sort of left, I think by what, 1 a.m. I was the only person in the bar and I, and I just started talking. It was great. We talked a lot about like the history of the bar, why it had been closed for so long during the pandemic. What had been going on with that? Uh, how, how many times he has to turn away someone for not having their vax card while he and I were sitting there. I think there's two people left in the bar at this point. Some dude staggered in and ordered a drink and he's like, can I see your vax card? And the guy just goes, ah, and he walks out. Of the room. <laughs> I was like, how often does that happen? And he's like, well, that guy tried that last week. But other than that, I only get like maybe one every couple of weeks. <laughs> so that was promising. It made me feel better. Um, yeah, I got to know him. Told him we were coming the next night and the next night and blah, blah, blah. And it was great. Went to bed at my hotel, my old same regular hotel. They remembered me when I checked in, which made me feel, you know, good. Uh, a little bit more worse for wear since the pandemic. They got rid of the mini bars. They got rid of the fridges. <laughs> But it was good to be back to that hotel. It's got its problems, but I love its central location. Although it, it then turned out the central location was kind of not kind of a moot point because I wasn't going to go to the office. I I had a board meeting Monday morning, and so I did that. But I did that from the hotel on, on the phone because nobody's in the office. 
and I didn't really feel like going. You know? <laughs> and then I took the rest of the week off. So I did the board meeting and then I was like, I don't need to go to the office. I, originally I had expensed the trip. I thought I'd do a bunch of work stuff, but I didn't, <laughs> I took it off and I just going to write work a check instead to reimburse. Um, so where am I going with this? Oh yeah. So board meeting. And then, uh, Monday, I just started late around in the hotel. I caught up with, was it work? I was a work day. And then around five, I went back to Tom and Jerry's to meet the, my friends that I was going to Genesis with. So I'd gone to Genesis before. So, uh, you know, there's this whole sort of game theory calculation in my head over the last month about Genesis. Like they're coming to Raleigh. Do I go to that show? I have tickets for the show with New York. I want to go with my friends. I don't really know if I need to see them twice, but if I don't end up not going to New York, I will hate myself if I miss Genesis because it's probably their last tour. So the last minute, Em and I went to the show in Raleigh, sat in the very back of the stadium, the arena, five rows completely empty with no one around us. Very safe, kept their masks on the whole time. So I was happy to have seen them. But this time I went with friends at like Genesis and, uh, Actually, it was kind of amazing because one of my friends, Kevin, I didn't realize how much he loves Genesis. And I knew Rena loves Genesis because Rena and I had gone to Phil Collins together. But uh, it just made it so much better to be. I mean, you know, Emma likes Invisible Touch era Genesis, but she does not care or really think about, you know, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway and Trick of the Tail and stuff like that. But Kevin does. He loves it. Uh, so it just, you know, and I had a couple beers in me and, <laughs> and I was with friends that loved them and. It was great. I had a better view, had a much better seat, straight on, good sound. It was awesome. I really loved it. I'm really, really glad I went twice. So that worked out really well. I kept my mask on the whole time. Uh, even though they were, every show I went to, they were requiring vax only. None of this like 72-hour negative test bullshit, right? I'm not into that. I think that is unrealistic in this day and age. That's not a helpful thing. So, you know, I felt a little bit better about that, and I kept my mask on. So I'm in a place that's vax-only checked, and checking matters. You can't just call the thing vax-only, right? And, yeah, I think people fake it, but I don't think it's as widespread as you think, and uh, I think the mask helps with the faking it. Um, still a little uncomfortable. People were definitely, you know, close, and I didn't love it. Nobody else was in their mask in, it in that show. But it's interesting. Like, of the, you know, of the shows, Yola Tango fans, 80% masked. <laughs> Genesis fans, 30%, 20% masked. Uh, so that was great. Then we went to some dumb Irish bar up in, you know, that area, Penn Station area. And uh, then I went back to Tom and Jerry's because Brian was working, the bartender, my favorite bartender from forever ago. And uh, I hadn't seen him yet. And I got there and it was awesome because it was basically the Balthazar holiday party on one half of the bar and the Finelli holiday party on the other half of the bar and me in the middle. Brian was super busy, but I got, I had, you know, two drinks, got to say hi. It was great. And I went back to my hotel. It just felt very New York. It was awesome. Walked back to the hotel, got a slice of pizza, that Prince street pizza place. Uh, yeah, it was great. Um, the one thing, other thing I'll say about Soho on Monday morning is that all the bodegas are closing. It's really sad. Soho is sad. Like half of Broadway is still closed off. Both bodegas that have been there since I've been coming to New York to like 15 years ago are gone. Uh, 20 years ago. Jesus. Um, yeah, that was really sad. Duke is gone. Jubilee is gone. Uh, I went to two other bodegas that aren't gone, but they had gotten rid of their delis, so they didn't have any like bagel breakfast sandwiches anymore. I had to walk to the one over at Tribeca Bagels on Canal and Churchish to finally get a bagel. It's a real pain in the ass. 
Uh, but the pizza place on Prince is still there, so that's nice. Late night pizza, it's still doable. Lots of late night pizza still around. Uh, yeah, so Tuesday morning, had breakfast with Erica Kung, one of the first barbarians. Uh, that was great. We went to Landmark, that diner there in Soho. Hadn't been there in a while, long while. Really love it. Used to go there a lot when I lived down there. Uh, that was awesome. And then went back to the hotel. Uh, what day am I on? I'm on Tuesday, right? <laughs> Oh, yeah, so then I chilled in the hotel for a while, and then at 4.30, I went back to Tom and Jerry's and met my friend Alyssa. Tuesday was going to be the big Tom and Jerry's night. Uh, Rex and uh, Kevin and I invited a bunch of people to Tom and Jerry's. So, But I went early because I wanted to see Alyssa. She wasn't going to go to the thing that night. We had a nice time there. Uh, some people started showing up. Alyssa left, and I snuck away for one hour to go to Mercury Lounge to see Wet Leg. The female duo that is sweeping the charts from the Isle of Wight with their their viral hit Shays Along, and it was awesome, and I loved it, and they were great, and half the New York crowd was like super into it, and the other half was just like, I'm going to check out this cool new band. Uh, it was their first show in America. They played Fallon, I think, that night or that day. Um, yeah, it was awesome. I loved it. On the shades long, on the shades long, honestly, all day long, on the shades long. Their other songs, they had a full set. They have a full album coming out. They played like six other songs besides the four that have released. They played a cover of Talking Heads. It was awesome. Uh, the crowd is about half masked, not even, eh, yeah, maybe half. Mercury Lounge is rough because you got to get, it's hard to get in and out of that place. And, you know, it was the early show, so that was nice. So I knew it was going to be over early. But you got to, like, squeeze your way out. I got a wet leg sticker. That was nice. Kept my mask on the whole time. Didn't have a drink. Walked back to Tom and Jerry's. Had a great night with a ton of friends. It was fantastic. The highlight of the trip. Wonderful time. Saw, like, 30 or 40 friends. Caught up with a ton of people. Loved it so much. Saw Conrad. Saw Scott. Saw Micah. Saw Seth. Saw Rex. Flood. Uh, so many people. Zach. Oh, my God. Chrysanthi. Saw Dennis the night before. It was just great. It was great. Uh, yeah. And then the next day, I guess we're on Wednesday now. Last day, had breakfast with Noah Breyer at Balthazar. Fantastic. Sat outdoors. Uh, very excited about that. Got to experience outdoor New York dining. It really works great, even in the cold. I don't know why everybody's stopping to do it. You should all start doing it again. You have a pandemic going on. Uh, but it was great. Catching up with Noah was great. Uh, then my lunch canceled and then I went to uptown to the New York Historical Society, which is up by the Natural History Museum and met my friend Tim Wang, ex-barbarian. And we went to the Robert Caro exhibit, which was awesome. Very small, but really cool. And then we walked back to Tim's work, which is in Herald Square. So like eh, 40 blocks and just had did a nice walk and talk. Uh, that was awesome. Went back to the hotel. My dinner canceled. So I had two cancellations and there's two people I wanted to see, which is a little bit of a bummer. I could have like rearranged things, but you know, it is what it is. And I certainly didn't regret the dinner canceling because I was really tired after the long walk. Uh, I was going to meet flood for the LCD sound system. And we, at first we were like, well, we'll just get dinner first. And they were both like, nah, we're too tired. So we, <laughs> I got a burrito from Dos Toros, which was amazing. And she just stayed home and then we met at LCD sound system. We wore a mask. We stood in the back. We stayed away from everyone. We were as careful as you could be. The show was vax checking. Of course, people are free faking. But really, I don't think it's so much of faking. I think that people just believe their vaxes make them invincible. And they don't make them invincible. They make them so that they don't end up in the hospital. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which is good, but you can still, like, get it. You can still, you know, transmit. Uh, 
the the next night at LCD, there is a confirmed outbreak of COVID. I'm sure people got COVID in my night. I mean, we were in the back. We, you know, the crowd is all maskless, dancing and crammed in there. We stay as far away from all that as we could, and we never took our masks off once. So that was, you know, it was hard because, like, I mean, I'd seen Flynn at Tuesday night. She was one of the last to leave. We had a good long catch-up, and we talk every day. It was fine. But um, it's very hard to talk to people. It shows in masks, and so I understand why people do it. But, you know, I just, uh, we just kept our masks on, and it worked. I didn't know it was going to work, but it worked. So, yeah, then uh, I went, I flew back the next morning and went straight. I, I came to my house, opened the garage door. Uh, got loaded up new luggage and a like a monitor <laughs> 27 inch 5k monitor <laughs> and i went to the hotel and checked in and i stayed at the hotel thursday friday saturday and sunday testing every day and it was all fine it's all fine in fact i'm still testing i just took one an hour or two ago and it's negative that'll be day eight so i think i'm good but uh yeah the hotel was amazing i mean it was kind of this whole relational communication level up challenge thing right like i didn't want to stay in the hotel because i felt bad about giving emma another four days of childcare. emma felt bad about putting me in the hotel because she knew i wanted to see jane and wanted to help on child care but we both secretly wanted me to stay at the hotel <laughs> so we worked it out and i was awesome i mean definitely by the fourth day i was like i'm bored i want to go home but like i had a lot of work to catch up on i had like books to read shows to watch and you know friends to catch up on it was just great I, I set up my big monitor and i brought a keyboard and a trackpad and i set it up at the desk and I, I got a bunch of food from home that emma had packed up for me and i put it in the fridge and i mean like some days i didn't even get one meal outside of the room it was awesome <laughs> so yeah it was a great trip i had a great time uh i got home sunday and i've been testing every day uh janet my mother-in-law who lives with us she has like some respiratory challenges she's vaxxed but she wanted to play it safe so she didn't cover with jane until wednesday which was a full week of my negative tests and uh so i got jane for an hour and a half longer each night i was doing every bedtime because obviously i owed emma a bunch of bedtimes because i was gone and you know i wasn't sick of her at all like <laughs> When you, when you leave your child for a week, you miss your child. And when you come back, you, like, are happy to do all the, like, things that you were sick of, like diapers and bedtimes and stuff like that. Jane is good. I wouldn't say diapers now. There are no diapers anymore. Um, she's not fully potty trained. She won't poop in the potty. She saves her poop mostly for nighttime undies, which are diapers. I mean, who are we kidding? But uh, the rest of the day, and then before I left, she wouldn't go potty with me. She'd wait for mommy. So there was this risk of accidents in the morning, you know. But now... You know, mommy got her trained while I was gone to just get up and go to the potty all by herself when she gets out of bed. And when I came home, we just continued it. I was just matter of factly like, I heard that's what you do now, go. And she did. So every morning now when I wake her up, she just goes into the bathroom and goes to the bathroom by herself while I just sit in this comfy chair in her bedroom waiting for her. And it's awesome. You know? I've successfully got her to go to the bathroom once. She told me she wasn't going to go to go potty with me until 2022, but she is. So she still won't poop in a potty she's done it once or twice but we think that was an accident mostly she just says no a lot when we try to talk to her about it so we're just not rushing her on that yet it, it all works there's no accidents during the day she goes to potty during the day she poops at night in her nighttime diaper once a night before bed so she's not like having any constipation issues i don't know you non-parents don't want to hear this shit but it's going pretty well <laughs> i also have this whole thing where i'm going to turn her kitty drawings into nfts <laughs> <laughs> she draws these kitty drawings like hundreds of them and they're really good i mean for a four-year-old and 
I just think they'd be make, they'd make very good NFTs. <laughs> uh, what else? Work's going well. Also going to do some NFTs at work. <laughs> I wrote a big crypto essay the week before I went to New York. I don't know if you guys read it. Uh, I don't know how much I want to talk about on here. We will just say that I uh, still am deeply dubious of the societal uh, society and culture stuff, but I also think that there's some interesting tech stuff. One big epiphany I had was that, like, there's just a, I'm in ad tech. There's a shit ton of assholes in ad tech. I put up with that just because it's filled with assholes. That's not my problem, right? And then, like, Doug, my engineering friend, is, like, really into, like, some of the nerdy technical aspects. And it's fun to watch engineers have fun again because their jobs have been really shitty for years now, you know? They don't really get to, like, do anything but plug packages into each other and do unit testing. So I've, like, gotten – I've tempered my views. Oh, and the other big thing I think that is interesting to a layperson is that – the environmental catastrophe stuff you hear is true about Bitcoin and currently true about Ethereum, but it will be untrue about Ethereum very soon. It's actually real, all the fixes they're doing. So that kind of like forced me, right? I didn't want to be a hypocrite because people are always like, what do you think of crypto? I'm like, I don't think about it because it's an environmental catastrophe and I'll never touch it. And then I did some research and I'm like, okay, well, Ethereum is going to not be an environmental catastrophe. So I have to have an answer beyond that so I, anyway anyway i wrote this whole thing and now i'm like working on a project for work with it and working on a couple of friend projects i already took one advisory from you know, the company <laughs> that was the other big thing it's like it's kind of like it reminds me a lot of web 1.0 where i was a graphic designer and all my graphic designer friends were debating whether they should go and deal with this and learn about this internet thing or not and like a lot of them didn't and it really fucked their careers for a long time till they migrated over there were a few people that were just gods that managed just fine you know, doing print logos till the day they retired. But for the bulk of us, we had to like eventually learn the internet. And as an operator, finance sort of operations guy in startups now, I'm feeling similar thoughts that if I don't get some experience in this, I'm going to like pass, put myself out the pasture. And while I very much want to put myself out to pasture, I want to do it voluntarily. <laughs> I don't want somebody else to put me out the pasture because my skills aren't up to date. So <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dip my toes a little bit more, as it were. Yeah, anyway, uh, so one of those things is a project to work around NFTs. Other than that, work is going great. Two of our big new clients just launched yesterday. Launches for us are very small. People launch and then they start ramping up, but it's huge. Very excited about that. Uh, having some interesting talks with other companies. Uh, yeah, the holidays are coming. That's nice. Yeah, I handed out the holiday bonuses for everyone. I, I love feeling like Santa Claus when I get to do that part every year. Uh, New York passed a law that I have to collect everyone's vax cards, <laughs> which has been a whole thing because I have to do it for all New York City employees that live in the city. But if they live in like Jersey City or West New York, which is in New Jersey, and they go to the office, I have to collect the cards. But if they live out there and they don't go to the office, I don't have to collect the cards. And nobody has to go to our office. We're voluntary. But if they do go in, they need the cards. So, like, I'm like, okay, you don't have to give me your card right now. But if I catch you going to the office without giving me your card, you're in trouble. So why don't you just give me your card right now, even though I can't legally require to ask you for the card right now? You know what I mean? It's just this whole song and dance. But I, most of that's done now. <laughs> but, yeah, I've been enjoying work. Uh, you know, the four days off really helped. One more week of work for another holiday so that's like a nice amount of work i would love to work one week on one week off wouldn't that be great maybe two three days a week that would be good too work man work uh anyway gardening <laughs> yeah right my basil plants survived me being gone for a week my indoor basil plants for them trying to keep alive for the whole winter so i have bait, fresh basil in my stir fries they worked pretty well i literally haven't even looked outside um 
I'm glancing out there, and it looks like the snow peas are actually doing pretty well. I haven't watered anything out there, so I don't know how it's still alive. I know they like use water at a much lower rate in the winter, but I'm going to head out there later today and give everything water. It was like 65 yesterday, so I definitely could water everything. I always get paranoid if I put water in them. They're going to freeze, but it's not that cold. Let's see. What is it today? 64 out there, so yeah, I'll go water everything. I might actually get some snow peas and broccoli. Yeah, the lettuces I can see from here are doing great. And I got some beets out there. Yeah, oh, it'll be fun. Cauliflower. Oh, be amazing if it's all still working. Yeah, so the garden, you know, I'm really just planning for next year. The birdies beds, four birdies beds, five birdies beds now, all leveled and put in new areas, ready to go for next year. It's going to be awesome. And then on writing, uh, I am editing the Good Morning Hello, How Are You book. I'm about halfway through. It's all laid out. I'm about halfway through my edit. Then I'm going to, Emily Taylor is going to write the forward for it, and I'll write a quick intro, and then we pass it back to Lisa Carver to f do a final edit on the book. So I think the book will be done and ready for printing. I don't know what I'm going to do about a cover, though. So, but other than that, it'll be done and ready for, for printing by the end of January, early February. So keep an eye out for that. That's pretty exciting. New book, fourth book. Under my belt, I am now the author of four books. Pretty exciting. It really changed my outlook on the whole pandemic, actually, because I thought I was doing nothing, and it turned out I was writing a uh, amazing book. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, I guess I haven't talked about this on here. Uh, it's really good, and Lisa did a fantastic job because I gave her half a million words, and I was like, just cut out anything moderately boring and keep the good shit. And she cut over a little over half the words, and it's awesome. And nobody's going to want to read it, though, because who, I mean, it's very traumatizing for me to read it right now because last year sucked and we're not ready to think about it. You know, I mean, like the Trump stuff. I mean, there's stuff you like whole things you forget. Do you remember the goon squads in Portland? The, the cops with no insignias? I had forgotten about them. I'd forgotten about the child cops in Atlanta that never really got explained. Were those kids? Were they midgets? Who knows? Uh, I don't think that's a good word. I don't know. Little people? What's the word now? I don't know. But uh, yeah, there's all these things that like we've forgotten about the pandemic. And I documented them all. And I think that's going to be very valuable someday. But not right now. Nobody wants it right now. I think some friends will buy it because they read it and they have like some fond nostalgia to the comfort I provided them during the pandemic. But like Lisa and I are joking that we ought to send it to a an agent in like 2030 or something. <laughs> but I don't care. It's done. It's good. I'm proud. That's the important part. Uh, and then I wrote that big crypto essay. So I got that done. And then I think I, you know, I had a good week this week on the good morning. Hello. How are you? I wrote another essay, uh, this interesting essay about an argument. Emma and I had about fluoride and children that turned into like a crisis of faith about behavioral economics. I thought that was very good. I read a very long, detailed review about the new Dawn of Everything book by David Graeber and David Wingrow. I thought that was very good. I kind of half-assed today's good morning. Hello, how are you? But I've just been writing a lot, and I was feeling really good about it. So, yeah, I'm very, 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 very proud of that book. I will let you know when it's available. I hope you buy a copy. I will. It will be affordable. Put it on your shelf. Set a calendar date for 2030. Read it in, like, 5, 10 years. All right, media. Yeah, all right, let's see. We can do this. Added a bunch of stuff to Plex. Since I last talked to you guys, uh, When We Were Kings, about the rumble in the jumble, <laughs> Jesus, rumble in the jungle, and Soul Power, which is about the concert that accompanied the rumble in the jungle, and I strongly recommend watching that. Long Day's Journey into the Night, uh, better copy of that. Uh, get Back, 
I put up there, and the original Let It Be movie. We'll be talking about those extensively in a couple of minutes, as well as the George Harrison two-part TV documentary, Living in the Material World. All of that is up there on Plex. Uh, an HD copy of The Umbrellas of Cherbourg by starring Catherine Deneuve, uh, a 1080p copy, actually. I already had a 720p copy up there. And Waitress, the amazing film by Adrian Shelley, who we will be talking about extensively in a moment. Uh, I had Discogs turned off for my trip, and I just turned it back on right before I started this podcast. So I only sold two things right before I left on my trip. I sold a copy of a CD by The Incredible String Band, Changing Horses. And this one is really good. I'm a little sad I sold this. It's uh, Zang Tum Tum, the ZTT box set. ZTT is a German record label, and they were amazing. Uh, often the continental label of certain synth pop things like Depeche Mode, but also had their own stuff like Fad Gadget, all the way through to like the, the early dawn of Electronica, Big Beat Rave, like The Prodigy and stuff. Just a great label. And it was like a four CD box set. I bought it like 20 years ago and it never came out on vinyl. And I'm all of a sudden very sad. I sold it. <laughs> uh, only knew four new records. I was really worried that when I was in New York and in the hotel for a week that like when Emma gets to the mail all the time, she notices that like 10 different record boxes have arrived and she kind of gives me these like stink eyes when I get home, but only two records showed up while I was gone. So that was good. But uh, Primal Scream has a new album, live album called Live at Levitation, which is awesome because I was at that show. I was in like the second row. <laughs> uh, Levitation, formerly known as Psych Fest in Austin, took place at the Carson Creek Campground. This was probably like 2016, 2017. My friend Doug Pfeffer and I went down there uh, because we knew a lot of the people involved in putting Levitation on, and it was awesome. And the Jesus and Mary Chain played right after them, and I was so bummed that Bobby Gillespie, the lead singer of Primal Scream, who's the original drummer of the Jesus and Mary Chain, did not play drums on Just Like Honey like he does in the video. It made me very sad. <laughs> but it was still a great show, and now it's on LP, and it's picture disc, actually, and it's awesome. Uh, Mary Lattimore, the alternative harpist, has a amazing new... It's an album, but it's, a, it's sort of an anthology. It's it's like a collection of unreleased works. It's called Collected Pieces 2015 to 2020. And it is just phenomenal. I, I It's it's the best thing I've ever heard from her. I mean, you know, it's a little spotty. Some of the things fit into the album. So two pieces specifically I'm thinking of are monumental in both breadth, scope, and texture. And they're unlike anything I've ever heard on her records. And I just love it so much. Strong recommend. There's a new Idols album. It's called Crawl. I really like Idols. Punk noisy thing. Kind of in the grinder man vein. And uh, I loved their last album. This one I've given two listens to. And I like it so far a lot. A little bit noisier in some places. A little bit more melodic in some places. Harder in some places. It's more extreme in all directions, basically. Less samey. Uh, and then just today, uh, I got a copy of Roberta, Roberta Flack's Quiet Fire as my record of the month from Vinyl Me Please. But I haven't even listened to it yet. So can't really say anything about that. Other albums I listen to, Peaks, P-E-A-K-E-S, Peripheral Figures, kind of a mellow, smooth synth pop thing, really liked it. W.H. Lung, Vanities, I, I used to consider them kind of a space drone shoegaze band, but this one's more sophisticated, a little bit more electronic. If I had to find an analog to W.H. Lung, it would be the Underground Lovers, who also have gone sort of moved around between shoegaze and space and sort of dubby synth and, 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 and like W hotel music. <laughs> I really liked it. It's good. Uh, there's a Juno 44 album, but it's not, it turned out it wasn't really an album. It's like remixes and stuff. It's called revisionist, uh, 
adaptations and future histories in the time of love and survival and it's sort of like remixes and reworkings of june of 44 songs and i liked it but it wasn't really it was very weird um some of them were very extensively different remixes a little bit grindy in places electronica in places it was cool but it wasn't june of 44 in the the way i was hoping when i thought there was a new june of 44 album not new but unheard by me uh hen ogled these guys are awesome <laughs> All right, so I subscribe on YouTube to a bunch of like record label YouTube channels, and one of them put out this single by this band, Hen Ogled, and it was called No Wood Accepted, which is the name of one of the the EP that I listened to. And it's basically this seven-minute song about a guy trying to drop off wood at his local collections recycling center, which you know is a very big part of my life, so I'm deeply sympathetic to this. And they wouldn't take his wood anymore because they stopped accepting wood at that location. He had to go to another location that's like seven miles away. And he wrote a letter complaining about it. And it just goes on and on and on. I was like, this is amazing. And then I found out that that's kind of their thing. And they had a whole album called Free Humans. And I listened to it. And it's just fantastic. They're like, just a great band that write weird, catchy pop songs about humdrum, mundane, normal life stuff. I think they're Welsh. I'm a little bit worried. They're from one of Great Britain's minority nationalities that don't speak English as a native tongue. I'm going to go with Welsh. Pardon me, thinks Cornish. I don't think Cornish is a thing. I'm going to go with Welsh. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to look it up. Historically different tribal regions of the Old North is what it says on their biography on Domino Records. So yeah, we're not going to go with Welsh. Anyway, they're great. Strong recommend. No Wood Accepted and Free Humans by Hen Ogled. Uh, then I got really into this band AKG7, Akden Gwang Chil. I don't know where they're from, but somewhere in Asia. I'm, yeah, now I gotta look that up. Yes, yeah, South Korea. They're great. They're kind of like a South Korean version of, hmm, what's that? Golden Dawn Orchestra or something like that. <laughs> Just kind of fun, weird, psych, droney pop. Uh, I love them. They're awesome. They did a, I think it was KEXP, and it was just great. Look it up, AKG7. Uh, then I listened to the Flame and Lips album with the 17-year-old girl, Nell Smith, where they did an entire album of covers of Nick Cave songs called Where the Viaduct Looms, and I enjoyed it. Uh, she is very talented. Uh, the premise of the project is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, it was good. It was weird. I mean, it was good. Uh, song selection, you know, mm, I could go on for 30 minutes about the song selection on that album, but I won't. Uh, but if you're a Nick Cave fan or Flaming Lakes fan, or you just want some like, awesome stuff sung by a woman with a great voice, check out Where the Viaduct Looms. Dummy, mandatory enjoyment. Don't remember it all. <laughs> don't remember that record at all i think it was really good though oh yeah it was really good uh but i don't remember it but i'll have to really comment on it geese projector uh my friend kevin carney got me into this he had seen them at desert days it's like some kids like seven 17 and it was uh sort of like a mix between like um cranky in the doldrums era and space rock and kurt vile and pop it was very talented and i enjoyed it very much allison russell outside child beautiful album i read I, I i got this from the comments on some facebook post where some other friend of mine was like what should i listen to and somebody i didn't know recommended this and i was like okay and like three people were like oh my god it's gorgeous and they were not kidding man i don't know anything about her i haven't had time to look it up but the album was gorgeous her voice is amazing i strongly recommend it. allison russell outside child 
then I listened to All Things Must Pass in its entirety, the long, like, expanded edition on five albums or some shit by George Harrison. I knew, like, you know, the hits on it, but there are a lot of songs I didn't know, so I was like, I need to listen to this in its entirety, um, which we'll talk more about when we get to the Beatles section here. <laughs> then the day before I heard out that Mike Nesmith died, I listened to Changes by the Monkees, which I think is the album without Mike Nesmith. It's kind of a coincidence. My friend Nick was going on about how great a record it was, and it is a great record. And then the next day, Nesmith died. That was really weird, but unrelated. Uh, MNDR, Minder... Hell to be you, baby. I didn't really love that record. I like MNDR in general, and it was okay. It was good, but it wasn't as good as their old stuff. Uh, the new Brandy Carlisle in these silent days, I love. I've listened to it like four times now. I love the slow songs. I love the Wild Horses song, Only Wild Horses. It's great. It's a great album, man. She's awesome. Brandy Carlisle rules. <laughs> it's like big country. Somebody said not. I'm not. I mean, large country, not the band. Big country. Somebody said, I think it was my old corker John just said to me, to me yesterday, he said that like that song, Only Wild Horses, is like, I can't remember. It was a great analogy. It was something like, I'd have to look it up. But anyway, amazing, amazing, big modern country record. Uh, and then I listened to Circuit de You. Uh, I don't know. The album's name is hyphen, lowercase i, lowercase o, so EO. I guess. Uh, I don't know anything about this. I don't even know why I put it in my playlist, but it's like this woman who's like sort of like Diamanda Gallus, like amazing sort of wild yelping voice goth thing. It's awesome. I don't know why I listened to it, though. I don't know where it came from. But if you're into like Diamanda Gallus, dark goth, it reminds me of this sort of goth folk woman I love from Alberta in the 90s named Kathleen Yarwood. It's got more of an electronic thing to it. So it reminds me of that woman I was taught going on about last, like last month or so. I don't remember her name. Oh, I guess we could look it up. It's fun when I do this right on live on the air. Well, whatever. Um, Lingua Ignota. I went and looked it up. Yeah. Reminded me of her a little bit. Not quite as terrifying, but still very solid and gothy and awesome like that. Good shit, man. Uh, yeah, let's see. What else? So I think that's it for the albums. Yep, that's it for the albums. Let's see. Television. We'll do everything else. Then we'll do Get Back. <laughs> SNL. Still really into it. They're doing a very good job. Very happy. Billie Eilish was great. Her voice is amazing. I don't really ever think of that when I listen to her albums, but... Listening to her on weird skits on SNL, I'm like, wow, she's got an amazing voice. Because <laughs> you know? I often think of a lot of those women actresses, uh, cast members of SNL having great voices. There's a lot of like theater troopy people in there, you know. And she was doing one with, I think, like Cecily Strong and somebody else that have historically thought had great voices. And her voice was just so much better. And I was like, oh, yeah, Billie Eilish, man. She's got her. That's crazy. That one's got some pipes. Uh, Yeah. Where am I? Oh, yeah. And then uh, we finished Mythbusters before I left. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, yeah, that was before I left. Until I last talked to you guys. Uh, we finished Mythbusters. Very exciting. I did not, we did not really enjoy the last season without the B team. So that was really hard, the build team. But we got through it. They had some great things. And then they had the reunion at the end, which was really nice. Um, but yeah, it was like, uh, man, I think we spent like four or five months watching Mythbusters. So the end of an era for us. But it was it was it was a little emotional, but it definitely did also was a little like crawling over the finish line with that last season. <laughs> we finished what we do in the shadows, which was fantastic. It had a bonkers cliffhanger that I cannot really process. Like I admire their daring and doing these weird ass cliffhangers. So we'll see what happens with that. But also it doesn't really matter because it's a comedy. 
Uh, then we finished The Great, which I did not like this season as much as last season. I love Gillian Anderson. I thought her performance was amazing, but I felt much more manipulated than I this season than I did last season. And honestly, I could go about the on about this for a very long time as well. Emma and I would pause the show and have very long conversations about our philosophies behind like narrative and and television and like the manipulation of the audience and things like that and like characters staying true to themselves. And I would you know it was a comedy. The first season was more comedic comedic than the second season. That's part of what did them a disservice as it became less comedic therefore I applied a higher standard to it comedies can break these rules all the time they're allowed to you know but when they try to be comedies with seriousness the characters have to stay true to themselves and they don't always stay true to themselves in this in fact one of the characters is downright schizophrenic too and then one of them is just written badly and it bothers me because it's not true to itself internally eminent critique right like i'm not talking about external forces like they wouldn't do that in reality i'm talking like you have developed this character in a way that makes me not believe they would do that and i know humans are fickle and then we talked about that a lot but i'm like if you write in fickleness into your characters you need to write it you can't just use it as an excuse later you know so I had a lot of problems with it, but it is gorgeous. It is very well acted, and I think that's why there's problems with it. They've just got like an amazing cast, and they don't want to get rid of any of, any of them. So they're doing a palace intrigue thing where people need to be dying all the time, and nobody's dying because they like the carrot the actors too much. <laughs> uh, but it's worth watching, especially the first season. Uh, Hawkeye. We are watching Hawkeye on Disney Plus because I will watch the entire MCU. Even though uh, Hawkeye's fun, it's good. Uh, it's it's brisk. It's got humor. It's it it it, it doesn't drag. Uh, it's fine. It's fine. I don't have a lot of thoughts about Hawkeye just yet. <laughs> uh, and then we're watching Only Murders in the Building, which several people recommended. And never really wanted to watch, and I was like, I don't care about that. It's whatever. It's a half hour comedy. I don't do half hour comedies, but it's great. We're not quite done yet, but we love it. Uh, Steve Martin, Martin Short, Selena Gomez, fantastically done. And, uh, you know, I'm not much of a murder mystery person because they make me feel dumb because I can never figure them out and I hate that. But I don't care in this one and I'm just enjoying it. And it's hilarious. Well done. And I will start a Wheel of Time on Amazon. My friend Nick recommended it. I've never read the books. I don't know anything about it. At first, I was like, this is a little too Lord of the Ringsy, a little too questy, but they seem to have like realized and shifted and it's better. And it doesn't feel like Lord of the Rings anymore. And I, I think we're four episodes in, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty wrapped up in it now. I could see spending another decade with this show. Better not get canceled. <laughs> Rosamund Pike is amazing, so I mean, I'll watch it just for her. And uh, yeah, we're enjoying it. I'm excited to watch another episode of it tonight. Uh, and then I think we'll start Discovery and the expanse next and i personally now that i finished get back we'll start succession i keep saying that but i haven't started it yet at the beginning of the season nobody was saying anything about it and i was like nobody cares about this season i'm not gonna bother by the end of the season everybody's like oh my god that's some of the finest acting of the last 50 years so now i'm like okay i gotta watch it but i gotta like start and also in my mind i gotta slog through the first half of the season and emma doesn't want to watch it so i gotta do it on my own time so it's just gonna take forever but i will get to it and then we have get back which was the same thing emma watched part one with me about halfway through, she was like, okay, I'm not into it. And she walked off. <laughs> she let me finish by one, but then I was like confronted with five hours of film I had to watch by myself. So I did that when I got to the hotel and like quarantine. And uh, yeah, I mean, first off, Peter Jackson did a great job. 
thousands of hours of footage. He picked very good stuff. I believe him when he says he picked everything that was representative. You get the strong sense there's no stone left unturned, and we got every important moment, so props to that. Secondly, the technical mastery of his crew restoring the footage combined with uh, George Martin's son. I don't know if you know about this, but George Martin's son is sort of the sonic overseer of the Beatles legacy and he did the sound mixing on this as well as all these last most recent reissues of Beatles albums and his team did a fantastic job mixing the audio which if you're paying attention is incredibly difficult because it's a mix of the audio from the recordings that were actually happening there uh, and the audio from the overhead mics that the director of the get of the let it be documentary was doing. So there's two recording sources through most of this, right? They're making an album and they're making a documentary and they both have different sound systems and the audio of what you're watching on the show is both of those makes. And it's very impressive. So technically it's a Marvel, uh, in terms of what was going on. I, at first I was like, Paul's the cool one. And I've been slowly turning from a John guy to a Paul guy through my life. But, but by really, like, the end of the first episode, I was like, Paul's a dick. I mean, okay, so it's important to remember all these people are, like, 22 years old, right? So I can't apply my 50-year-old knowledge of interhuman reactions and communication skills on them. They are not good communicators, any of them. They are all uncomfortable saying a sentence clearly and succinctly of how they feel. So they're all always saying, so, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, I just feel like maybe it's not me yeah i just i don't know and it's like very frustrating to watch these people be such bad communicators all of them ringo who speaks the least is probably the best communicator uh so that's really hard to watch It, it is also fundamentally a project management nightmare it is a catastrophe and the setup from the beginning and it seems pretty clear that that is paul's doing um You cannot be expected to write an album under a microscope while also having a director there who's trying to do a film special. They're trying to do too much at once. They own the company. They're their own managers. It's like they're responsible for the money. They're responsible for the timetable of of the live show and or the TV special and getting an album. All why they need to like carve out space to creatively write an album all while everybody's watching them. It's impossible. Yoko does not help matters sitting there being Yoko, but she's clearly not the biggest problem. And it's pretty clear to me... By that point in the band's career, the rest of the band had made their decision that they'll deal with John's Yoko thing and accept it because that price was bearable to continue the Beatles. They don't love it, but they're used to it by now. Um, So, you know, I find her intolerable sitting there all the time. I read an article about how she's the whole thing is a great piece of performance art. And there's some merit to that. I am generally a Yoko fan and of her performance art and her music to this day. But in this movie, I found all of her actions intolerable. Um, but she's not the problem. She's definitely not the reason they broke up. She's not causing any issues there. Nobody cares. Nobody cares that she's there. I mean, they dimly care, but they're, they're used to it. It's fine. The biggest problem is the project management angle. It's just a nightmare, right? And then so then poor Michael Lindsay Hogg, the director of the Let It Be documentary that is apparently trying to be made at this moment, along with a TV special, along with a deadline because Michael and Ringo have to go do a movie in two weeks. All of that is just poorly set up to carve out space to do creating, to create things. And the fact that in that space, they wrote most of the songs for Let It Be and Abbey Road is a fucking miracle. And it clearly speaks to their genius that these four 22-year-old kids kids under that kind of pressure can pull that off compared to you know ian curtis of the same age and of equivalent genius that cracked and killed himself with one-tenth of the pressure you know what i mean 
that's a horrible thing to say, but it's also true. But it is just irresponsible that they were in that position. They have no one else to blame them themselves because they have no manager and their label will let them do anything. They did it to themselves. But mostly Paul did that. And one of the things I find is very interesting is Paul had a quote unquote epiphany after Let It Be where he went and did Abbey Road. And he's like, let's just go and do an album in a studio. And it's like, yeah, dude, that's what you should have done this time. Like Let It Be only didn't fail artistically or creatively. It failed because you guys didn't give yourselves the room to do it. And that was Paul. Throughout the thing, George and Ringo, I mean, okay, so George shuts down like going on a cruise ship because it's a stupid idea and going to Egypt because it's a stupid idea. But like John's like, yeah, I'll play. I'll play anywhere. I just want to play. I want to get in front of audience. It's all in Paul's head and he won't admit it, you know, and he's like, it's so weird. And then like the rest of the band, it's almost like he's compensating because he's writing these. The Beatles famously called a lot of Paul's songs like Maxwell Silver Hammer Grammy music. And, you know, they're not wrong. He's writing this weird sort of bump, bump Grammy music, granny music. But he's trying to compensate for that with the avant-garde being aware of his competition in the Stones and Zeppelin and things like that by doing weird shit like playing in, you know, Africa or making a documentary or doing this weird thing or that weird thing when he should just be focused on writing a great album and he's not. I don't fault him for it because he's 22 years old. <laughs> From a songwriting point of view, Paul is like in top form and it is a fucking miracle. And I cannot fathom how anybody could be even try to keep up with him. And it must have been... John can keep up John's not in top form anymore and he's like too focused on his joke songs and wordplay and his voice but he can still write a great song when he wants to and he doesn't he's not uncomfortable with Paul's genius and the two of them are still very they've got embers of their old riffing relationship enough that Paul feel or John feels comfortable but for George I think this must be a nightmare like watching him bring you know like I Me Mine or All Things Must Pass into those sessions he comes up with great songs but like nowhere near the same rate and it's impossible to keep up and so Paul will naturally dominate John's letting him dominate because John doesn't really give a fuck <laughs> he's comfortable Paul has something to or, uh, George has something to prove still and it must be very hard for him I'm very sympathetic my friend Sean does not share that point of view because he's like he should have been fucking happy to be in a, a band with John and Paul and like just accept it and I disagree especially at that point those two cannot communicate and it's a problem John is definitely the better of the two communicators which I think is very interesting and that was somewhat unexpected for me I always thought Paul was going to be the mature one and he, he pretends to be the mature one, but if you look at the words he says and if you read them in a transcript form, he's not saying anything ever. He doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't know what he wants. And he is internally conflicted between writing a great album and doing something different, and it's just a mess. Uh, he keeps saying like they should do something live and then keeps saying he won't play on the roof, and it's dumb. And I, it's dumb that they never played again. It, who can blame him, man? It's like startups. It's like when some kid like leaves his Facebook to go start a company because they think he'd do it more. He's never even dealt with payroll. These dudes are paying everybody's bills. They're probably blowing so much money. Everyone in that room works for them except for Linda and Yoko. <laughs> you know what I mean? Alan Parsons is probably my favorite person in the documentary. He just sits there soaking it all up. He's like, I am privileged to be here and I am going to pay attention to everything. I really liked Alan Parsons. They did work very hard. Like my, imp like, you know, Let It Be is my probably my favorite Beatles album, maybe the White Album. And I, in my, I've always kind of thought they dashed it off, but they did not dash it off. Like they worked very hard consistently to make that record in a very short amount of time. It is a phenomenal creative achievement and it is bullshit that people consider it such a bad album or a weak album. I don't think people do anymore, but they did at the time. 
Miles. Uh, I, I do definitely feel like John is sabotaging things a little bit with his stupid songs like Madman. He just, well, bleep, 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 bleep. it's kind of tedious and he doesn't take things seriously enough, but he also needs to offset Paul's taking it overly seriously while also fucking the whole thing up. Um, yeah. So anyway, it was very, very, uh, I, I found the whole thing very compelling. I really, really wish I could see the Abbey Road sessions now. So what happened? And you know, it's interesting. They didn't even clear this up. I had to go like look it up. I read a biography of John Lennon, a very long one, like 800 pages years, uh, 30 years ago. So I knew all this, but I didn't remember. But, you know, what happens is they finish this session, they, they, they shelve Let It Be, and Paul's like, let's just try again and just make an album. It's like, yeah, dude, that's what you should have done the first time. That's what everybody, instead of you, it was your idea to do all this dumb live shit and, like, special and all that. So they just decide to go make an album the old-fashioned way with George Martin again and they make Abbey Road out of the remaining songs that you saw in the session that don't make it onto Let It Be. And that's a great idea. And, you know, well done. So I'm glad they did it. I would love to see those sessions. Uh, Paul and Yoko get in a car wreck. Yoko stays there just like she did in Let It Be sessions. Except for now they bring a bed in for her, which should have been gloriously surreal. Uh, they don't have uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg there anymore, the director of the documentary. So that helps a lot. Um, I just would love to see those sessions. And I'm sad that it didn't keep going. Not having Michael Lindsay Hogg was a bummer. But it's also the right move because that guy was fucking everything up. Because he just kept trying to like, you know, I mean, he had, he's a director. Directors have bosses in the forms of producers. They have clients and the clients were the subjects. And so he needed to simultaneously film the whole thing, but also get some fucking like idea from his clients of what they wanted for what he was doing. And so he was in an untenable position. Fun facts about Michael Lindsay Hogg are A, he is probably the illegitimate child of Orson Welles. He learned this while he was dating Gloria Vanderbilt who told him because Gloria Vanderbilt was his mom's best friend. <laughs> I bet that guy had an interesting life. His nominal father was a baron, and he eventually ascended to the baronetcy, even though he was probably Orson Welles' kid. And uh, he also directed the BBC miniseries for Brideshead Revisited, starring Jeremy Irons, of which, with which my friend Annie and I were completely obsessed in the 90s. So that's very exciting as well. But anyway, I'm sad he wasn't there, but also it was the right thing to do to not have him there for the Abbey Road sessions. But my God, I wish I could see a documentary of the Abbey Road sessions on after this. The live show on the roof is fantastic. And it's kind of a shame that that's all they did because they were in a very good live form at that point. And uh, I wish they had done more. Kind of sucks. But yeah, it was great. Very well done. Uh, movies. I rewatched Logan's Run. <laughs> I had forgotten a lot about that movie. Uh, it's a good time, Logan's Run. <laughs> I wish they would remake it. Uh, apparently, it's been in development hell. Logan's Run is ready for a remake. Uh, then I went when I was staying in the hotel. I, one morning, I went to a theater for the first time in years. I went to a movie theater, and I watched The Eternals. I had to pick a movie, and I picked the one I thought would be the least full at 1 p.m. on a weekday. Uh, and it was all right. You know, it, it's really interesting. I had a long talk about this on a Zoom with a friend yesterday. So I, I, I'm a little talked out about the Eternals because it wasn't that great. But one thing I found interesting is like I love Nomadland a lot. Chloe Zhao, the director's film before this. And I was really struck by the scenic vistas in Nomadland. The uh, just amazing, you know, vistas of the American West. They were really emotionally moving. And she did that again in this movie with the you know Brazil and the rainforest and the ocean, the Indian Ocean. And they didn't move me as much. And I think it was entirely a circumstance, not of cinematography, but of context in the sense that like in a superhero movie, I'm just not going to feel that same sort of emotion from these vistas that I do in a movie about American poverty. You know what I mean? 
Uh, I give her props for not having as much dumb fighting in her film as the rest of the MCU. There's too much dumb fighting in MCU movies. I know people like it. I don't. I think it's dumb. Um, but she did suffer from MCU's like punchy, clever humor dialogue, which is a trademark of the MCU and usually works really well and adds levity to the film. But I feel like the levity in this case made the film a little muddled. I think she had a very hard time with having eight main characters and that made like a narrative challenge. Even at two and a half hours, the film felt rushed which is not good, which really should, you know, what are they going to do, make a two-part Eternals film? This is like the most sort of edge case, obscure Marvel lore that's out there with the Celestials and the beginning of time and shit. It's just like, it's hard. They are in a hard place. They did a lot of good with it. It's going to be end up being a very, uh, very pivotal movie in the MCU. Eric Voss, this nerd I watch on YouTube, said this, and I think it's entirely true. A lot of people didn't like Age of Ultron, but it, in hindsight, Age of Ultron has become a very sort of pivotal moment in the story in the MCU, and I think that's what's going to happen with Eternals. Could have been better, but I liked it, and I don't blame the director. Uh, and then I watched Adrian. How much time do I have? All right, I got five minutes, so I'm going to do this. Real quick, Adrian, documentary on HBO about Adrian Shelley, an actress with whom I was obsessed in the 1990s. She stars in the first two or three Hal Hartley films. She became kind of like an indie it girl. And then she was murdered in her, her office in New York. I followed all of this. At first, they thought it was a suicide. That was devastating for me. A few weeks later, it comes out it was a murder. That was devastating. They eventually catch the murder. The whole thing is crazy. She has a daughter. She was married. The husband made this documentary about him and his daughters, sort of about Adrian, but also like their journey to healing across this last decade. I swear to God, the movie started. I started crying. I cried through the whole film. It is emotionally harrowing. If you ever cared about her, she is the director and writer of Waitress, which I mentioned earlier, which is a phenomenal film that went on to then become a, a hit Broadway musical with over 1,500 showings. She never got to see the musical. She never got to see Waitress debut at Sundance and win awards. She never got to see the critical acclaim that Waitress got. It was devastating. And watching this film was devastating. Her daughter now is an adult. Uh, she looks like Julia Stiles. She reads both her own diary, her own conversations from childhood with her dad, as well as Adrian's diary entries. And it's just heartbreaking, heartbreaking film, monumental work. Maybe I, I, I'm still scarred by it. But if you loved Adrian Shelley or indie film or anything like that, it's great. She was incredibly talented. It's definitely worth a watch. I'm confronted with a dilemma now because I finished a huge book this week, uh, David Graeber and David Wengrow's The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, but I did write extensively about it this week, so I think I'm just going to let it be here, ha ha ha, pun intended. It's a good book, it can be read a couple different ways, I think like reading it like a you'd read a presidential biography, just sort of this comfort history reading is a valid way to read it. Uh, reading it as a polemic against certain strands in modern philosophy is a very cathartic way to read it as well. You can skim it and I think you'd be fine. Uh, you could read the first and last chapter. I think you'd be fine. And you would find deep comfort in knowing that you're not crazy for thinking that both Rousseau and Locke are wrong and we are neither like tempered by civilization or ruined by it. So I recommend it. Well, it's either a blessing or a curse that I got this work call now, because I definitely could have gone for about 30 minutes about Wengrow and Graber, but I will spare you. 
Uh, drop a line if you want to know more, or I will send you my review from my email newsletter. Thank you for listening. Happy holidays. I guess I won't be, it will be after Christmas when I talk to you guys next. So have a lovely holiday. Drop a line. I'll see you soon. Take care.